Uh, let's all sing a song together for a brief second. It's going to help us sink. Um, so, row, 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 row your boat, boat gently, gently down, down the stream. stream. <laughs> merrily, 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 life, life is but a dream. But a dream. That was horrible. Our tempos are not the same. You will. Yeah. That's hard on Zoom. <laughs> okay, this is going to be difficult. Okay, um, since we're all working remotely, can we just do this like I'm taking attendance? Um, producer Justine Paradise? Yeah, I'm here. Taylor Quimby? Present. And our newest uh, intern extraordinaire and producer, Felix Poon? Hello, hello. And I am also present. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. So, okay, so every two weeks... We have story meetings where we where we pitch ideas and we make plans for the show. And for like a year or two, or I don't, like five, for like a million years. It's not that long. <laughs> Taylor has been bringing up this idea, which, which is not so much an idea, but just like a general topic that he wants to cover. Spicy peppers. And, and this idea has never gotten very far because that's it. That's the, that's the pitch. That you've, two words. That's not true. I pitched uh, <laughs> Hot Pepper YouTube shows. I literally didn't even listen, hear your question. <laughs> it's so hot. The existence of YouTube is not a story. <laughs> okay, well, I pitched that thing about um, the nerdy thing about Scoville heat units. The Naga King chili ranges from half a million to one and a half million. Uh huh. And we also shot that one down. But finally, he's gotten something through. <laughs> he has appealed to our competitive natures and has pitched a challenge. Right, because I may not have a good story, but all of these ideas that I've had have taught me one thing about peppers. They're a spice. Spicy. They're an ornamental. Fruity. And they're a medicinal plant. Absolutely lovely. And that is, they are hands down. Because of their flavor. 100%. Because of their color, because of the texture. The very best fruits in the world. It is almost as if these cuisines needed the heat to flourish. And I have assembled you here to try your best to prove me wrong. (laughs) When you say best, when you say that the the hot pepper is the best fruit, what do you mean? Well, I think that, I mean, obviously, you know, what is the best fruit or vegetable or anything (laughs) is a subjective line. But what I, what I, I think about is like, it is a fruit that has had outsized impact in some way other than just being tasty. I'm just going to say, like, I'm going to like go get a piece of fruit. And, like, you, like, walk to the kitchen and you're like, oh, let me grab this hot pepper. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> not what would happen. What, it's yes, a fruit. Yeah. Well, I, actually, I don't, know if, <laughs> I don't know if you all knew this, but there actually is jurisprudence here. The Supreme Court has weighed in on this question. What? Really? There was this. 1893 case where a tomato importer was trying to dodge tariffs, but the court jumped in and said, while there are lay definitions that say vegetables are things that are, quote, usually served at dinner with or after the soup, fish, or meats, which constitute the principal part of the repast, not like fruits, which are generally dessert, uh, end quote. (laughs) I have so many comments about this. (laughs) Yeah, it's prescribing to me when I should be eating my things. I don't know about you. I eat my fruit before dinner. Right. So so rather than go with this like fuzzy accepted knowledge definition of fruit, they said for tariffs, we must use the botanical definition of fruit, which is that, quote, tomatoes are the fruit of a vine, just as cucumbers, squashes, beans and peas. Can, can I just clarify, though, so, so that what they're partially saying is that like fruit is more of a biological term, but vegetable is more of a uh, term of art. 
botanically speaking, a fruit <laughs> is anything that that uh, develops from the ovary of a plant and contains right. seeds. The ovary of a plant. Vegetable as a term of art is um. I'm going to hold that close to my heart. <laughs> are nuts fruits? Yes. They are? Yeah, they're the seed. Are peanuts fruits? Are legumes fruits? How do peanuts grow? They're a bush. Yeah, I think they are. I'm clear okay. on the definition. But I mean, best, best though, I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, it'll be up to the, the arguer, the presenter to make the argument for what is best. Yeah, the only thing that I would say about what is best is like, you, you can decide what that is, but I encourage everybody to think beyond the palate. Like I think taste um, and and like cooking is a valid argument, but it shouldn't be the only one. So you're gonna have like more of an argument for us, right, than, than we've just heard? Oh, that was just the prelude. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait to destroy you, Taylor Quimby. Yeah, you're going down. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. For months now, our producer Taylor Quimby has been trying to convince us that the hot pepper is a story worthy to tell on this show. And finally, he's getting his chance. Welcome to the Outside In Fruit Off, a fantastically silly competition in which we make the case for four extraordinary fruits. And the verdict will come down to a listener vote. May the best fruit win. So it's only fair that uh, I go first in this argument and give you, you know, the full evidence for my claim here. Um, and I will do that in three sections. One, hot peppers are biological marvels. Two, their unique evolutionary adaptations make them incredibly versatile fruits in and out of the kitchen. And three, because of one and two, they are essential parts of cuisine in cultures all across the globe. Let's start with biology. Uh, and for that, I dug out an interview I did last year with Paul Bosland. He's director of the Chili Pepper Institute at New Mexico State University. The Chili Pepper Institute? It's amazing. They call me the Chili Man. A lot of people want to use Dr. Pepper, but I, I prefer Chili Man. <laughs> they like study peppers, they breed peppers, they do all sorts of crazy stuff. So he told me that peppers come from the nightshade family, which includes tomatoes and potatoes and tobacco, but within that family, peppers belong to the special genus of capsicums. Chilies are the only plants that have what we call a capsaicinoids. These are an alkaloid that, when consumed by mammals, give a burning sensation. And that actually protects them from being eaten by mammals, but notably birds don't have the receptors that make them feel the burn. Birds eat the wild, chilies spread the seed. Mammals, when they eat the fruit, uh, the seeds are destroyed in the digestive tract, and so the plant evolved uh, these capsaicinoids to discourage mammals from eating it. So it's kind of funny today that we love hot chili peppers so much. But not only do capsaicinoids make peppers spicy, they're also naturally resistant to fungus. So spicy peppers can be dried out really easily without molding which is cool. Actually, I get these little um, Thai chilies and these big things, and sometimes you'll notice that uh, mold will start to grow just around the stems, but not around the fruit. 
We freeze it, we can it, we dry it, and we actually have what we call a color extractor. They take the red chili peppers that we've bred with no heat and extract the red color, and it's the number one red coloring agent in food because it's natural. What about beets? Screw beets. They don't count. <laughs> what, what, what about beets? Who cares about beets? Moving Curry's on. chocolate. Um, so in addition to steering reproduction and avoiding disease, uh, for humans, capsaicinoids can act as a topical painkiller. So if you go to the pharmacy, you will find all sorts of over-the-counter capsaicin-based products for things like arthritis or back pain. And that is a use that goes way, 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 way back. We know the Aztecs used it as a toothache medicine. They would put it on a, a tooth that had a, a pain to get rid of toothache. So they probably began to uh, associate chili heat with pain reduction. Pain reduction? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like chili heat is pain multiplier. <laughs> so Paul has spent a lot of time studying and growing super hot peppers at the Chili Pepper Institute. Um, but he also grows a lot of pepper plants that are designed to be ornamentals that are decorational. And that's because the fruit tends to change colors as they ripen. So, you know, you might know like a jalapeno ripens from a green to a, a deep, beautiful red. And actually, Paul says that before breeders developed compact and potable poinsettias in the 1950s. People used to give jalapenos and peppers as Christmas plants. Um, with that in mind, he has been breeding chili pepper cultivars for just about every holiday you can think of. And I mean like every holiday. Uh, they call them Numex breeds for the University of New Mexico, where the Chili Pepper Institute is. Um, there is a Numex Thanksgiving pepper, a Numex Easter pepper, New Mexico Valentine's Day is white, white to red fruit. Halloween is black to orange fruit. Oh my God. They even have uh, cultivars for April Fool's Day, Chinese New Year, and Earth Day. St. Patrick's Day is green and orange with white flowers, the color of the Irish flag. Quick recap, uh, the chemical that makes peppers uh, helps them spread. It can be used as medicine. Um, they're naturally pest and fungus resistant. And because they can be bred to produce so many colors, they're used as an ornamental and as food coloring. And that is all before we have talked about taste. We have to consider this. Peppers are glorious. Do you have to consider that? I don't know if I have to consider You that. do have to consider it. They're <laughs> glorious. Uh, to help me with this part of my argument, I want you to meet three-time James Beard Award winner, uh, Maricel Presilla. My name is Maricel Presilla. I'm a food historian and also a chef. Now, you've all heard of the bell pepper, the poblano, the jalapeno, maybe the cayenne. But on a good year, Maricel grows as many as 300 different types of peppers. Have you tried ají dulce? The, 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 the sweet the sweet chinense or the ajicachucha? No, no. Taylor, <laughs> so behind. So if anybody's listening and planning to grow peppers, be ready. You'll become um, a collector and you'll become obsessed. And one reason you'll become obsessed if you start doing this is because the pepper is this multifunctional, multi-sensory fruit, right? It's a mix of heat and taste that ranges from spicy to sweet to bitter and everything in between. Very complex, uh, musky uh, notes and also um, a tropical flavor, sometimes um, like pineapple. Mm. Um, and some, in many cases, you know, you taste strawberries mm. um, or, or kind of disturbing uh, notes of flavor like maybe sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Very complex. Wow. 
Yeah. Very, very complex. Maricel is also a food historian, so let's talk about where peppers come from. Now, from husks and ancient feces found in archaeological sites, we know that people in the Americas had already domesticated the pepper some 8,000 years ago. Even at that ancient time, people were using uh, peppers as condiments. Uh, Which makes them one of the oldest known domesticated crops in human history, and maybe the oldest condiment, I don't know. Um, But for a long time, really, most of the world did not have access to the wonderful, uh, uh, amazing, glorious pepper. Yeah, it, start, it starts, you know, with the age of discoveries, you know, when when the Spaniards, you know, Columbus comes back to Europe, that's the beginning of everything. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Spices basically launched a whole era of colonization. Uh, yes, yes. But even while the conquistadors were actively destroying thousands of years of South and Central American culture, the pepper was fighting back. It was infiltrating nearly every cuisine it came into contact with uh, as it was brought back to those places. You know, basically you see peppers uh, conquering cuisines uh, throughout the world um, to a point that, you know, you can say that it's the one plant that has done that. Um, So it's not tomatoes, not even potatoes, but it's peppers. So the national spice of Hungary, Hungary, is paprika which is made from peppers, obviously. Indian food, Thai food, uh, Chinese food. If you think about Bhutan, um, the Bhutanese cannot live without peppers. Or think about Spain without pimenton, for example. So uh, peppers were the great colonizers, and um, they just moved everywhere, and people accepted them. know about this can framing. We, can we hang on a second? I, don't know. <laughs> I want to talk about this. Is this helping your argument? <laughs> Her words, not mine. Uh, I would like to. I would like to, to you to explain to me the difference between appropriating someone else's cuisine and culture and uh, that cuisine and culture infiltrating the the other cuisine. Well, explain that to me. Well, I think I think what she means is that like the pepper came in. And it became an essential part of cuisine in all these different places. And it, and it, and it has grown to become, in some cases, like the, uh, like the main feature of a lot of cuisines is certain peppers that are associated with certain regions. That's a dodge of that question. Back off for a second here. Uh, <laughs> this is a competition. Okay. Step up. Step up. So if you like beautiful fruits that resist mold, treat pain topically, can be used as a fruit, a vegetable, a spice that refuse to be colonized and instead have colonized the colonizers, then you must agree the chili pepper is the very, very best fruit. If you accept all of these premises that are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Justine Paradise is up next. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today, producer Taylor Quimby's dream of doing a story about spicy peppers has come to fruition, you might say. Nice. (laughs) In the form of a competition, the fruit off, in which we each pick a fruit and argue why it's the very best in the world. Up next is producer Justine Paradise. Um, All right. So my fruit, before I even hear whatever the heck your fruits are, I'm going to say that my fruit is the most versatile of any of the pretenders you're about Mm. to present. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It is literally known as the tree of life, we call it. 
to humans. No other fruits amongst the endosperm has such a lot of water that's drinkable. So this is Bee Gunn. She is a postdoc research fellow at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, Australia. And she has co-authored a couple papers on the genetic origins of this best fruit of all time, the coconut. Mm. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a good fruit. I know. Wait, what's an angiosperm? Right, an angiosperm, it's, it's just a flowering plant. All of your fruits are also angiosperms. It's a really giant and diverse category with like 300,000 species. Um, so so B wrote a paper in 2011 on the origins of the coconut, and she wrote in the first line of this paper with her co-authors, quote, the impact of the coconut palm on the history of human dispersal in the humid tropics is unparalleled in the plant kingdom. Whoa. Them's fighting words. Uh-huh. Uh, so I have three main points for this. First, the coconut is extraordinarily versatile, as I've said. Two, uh, you could argue that it made possible one of the greatest human migrations of all time. Of all time. <laughs> and three, not to mention it is friggin' delicious, which is where I will begin. You know, I grew up in Southeast Asia where coconut trees abound, and we had quite a few coconut trees in our backyard. And we would open them up and use the water for drinking. And we would, you know, scrape the coconut meat for cooking curries. And you know, So point one, the coconut is the foundational ingredient in a lot of incredible food, which includes a very specific type of cuisine where Bee grew up in Penang, which is an island off Malaysia. Um, it's one mm-hmm. of the places where you can find Nyonya cuisine, which is a blend of Chinese and Malaysian cooking, which is like, think like aromatic and tangy, like galangal, tamarind, and of course, coconut. Um, but for bee, this is not just about the food. And also the coconut has fascinated me as a biologist because it's one of the very big seeded fruits. It's one the second largest fruit in amongst angiosperms. And it has, it's a monotypic species, so nobody really knows where it originated. So the origins of the coconut are mysterious because, you know, this one species has a huge distribution across the Pacific and Polynesia, Australia, South America, as well as over to the Middle East and Africa, Madagascar. Part of the reason that this is hard to figure out and that the coconut spreads so far is that it can do so by a couple different mechanisms. Because the coconut is able to float and disperse by water. But also, of course, through the involvement of human beings, which is uh, the second point. You know, the coconut itself has um, enabled humans to colonize a lot of the Pacific because A, it was not only was it a food source, um, it was actually a a really um, wonderful portable source of water. And so the coconut itself has been um, like nature's gift to humans. It's like a water bottle filled with this nutritious water that lasts for a long time so that if you went on a long trip, um, you know, you can still survive. A long trip, like, you know, across Polynesia, like we've uh, reported on this podcast, the Polynesians that navigated across thousands of miles um, using incredible methods um, to discover places as distant as Hawaii. Isn't the coconut also a powerful laxative? <laughs> Another great point. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, just saying in a long sea trip, that might be a downside. Yeah. I mean, what else is your alternative? Like salt water? Like what else are you bringing? <laughs> can, can I just ask, is, is the coconut itself 
the seed or are there seeds inside a coconut? The seed is inside the fruit. The endosperm like is the meat of the coconut. Wow. Okay, so the coconut helped Polynesian navigators cross great distances. It's delicious. So that's points one and two. And now point three to one million. Here begins my giant list of uses of the coconut by human beings. It's the tree of life after all. So we just heard that the coconut's a natural water bottle, and the coconut industry is predicted to be 10 billion US dollars by 2030. But coconut water is not just for drinking. Water is also isotonic, so it can also be used for emergency surgery because it's similar to the blood plasma. Wait, so you can like transfuse coconut water into your blood veins? What I've heard uh, from, like, sort of in the air uh, is, like, in, in war. Like, you can use it in an emergency. Okay. It's not All your right. first choice, but it is an option. Okay. It's an option. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's also in Western medicine. Copper and oil is very important in pharmaceuticals. Then there's the endosperm itself. Which is the meat part, which can be dried to make copper or coconut oil, which is one of the major export products of um, many other countries in the tropics. It can also be used, the oil can be used to power cars. Um, in the Solomon Islands, they had a trial with the biofuel using, in, you know, instead of diesel, so. Um, then there's the husk. Which is used for making fibers, so historically it's used for making ropes. And there's this method where you can ferment the fibers underground, it's called retting. These uh, ropes are resistant to salt water, so it's very useful for making ropes for sailing boats and, you know, for making houses. Um, the husk is also used, the fibers are also used to weave mats or geotubes for erosion control. I use coconut coir in my garden to increase aeration as a peat alternative. Um, so that's like eight uses and B is not even close to done. The trunk is used for wood and for construction. The leaves. Uh, leaves for making thatch for roofs. The roots. They, they can be used for making toothbrush. Um, then there's spiritual uses. Um, or the spiritual context of the coconut. Uh, creation myths like the story Sina in the Eel from Samoa, which sees a face in the three holes at the end of the fruit. And then in a lot of cultures, for example, in Papua New Guinea, coconuts are used for magic as well. There's a little small coconut they call marapai, which is um, used for death magic. Magic, say it again, B. <laughs> <laughs> So it's critical to the human story, foundational to literally some of the best food in the world, fuel, shelter, transportation, water, magic. And one final point, there are some varieties of coconut that just sound incredible. Do you have a, a favorite variety yourself? Um, <laughs> yeah, I do actually. When I was collecting in, um, on Flores in Indonesia, there was a variety which um, has this wonderful, like a slightly fizzy, lemony taste. And I asked them, what's the name of the uh, variety? And it says it's Nyo. Uh, Nyo is the name, Malay name for coconut. Biasa means it's just normal. <laughs> so, <laughs> a regular coconut. So, <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, I said I like this a lot. So, oh, anyway, it was one of my very favorites. And, you know, on a hot day when you're collecting coconuts in the tropics 
Um, it's uh, certainly a wonderful drink <laughs> and something that helps you hydrate and you know survive for the rest of the collecting. Yeah, so yeah, a fizzy lemony coconut. Mm. I rest my case. I'm struggling to figure out how to trash talk coconuts. Yeah. And the the best thing I can come up with is that, like, I don't particularly like them, and I feel like a lot of people don't particularly like them. (laughs) Well, you don't even know if you particularly like them or not because, like, there's there's so many different parts that are used. Like, coconut oil is, like, in chocolate, you know? Do you not like chocolate? And coconut coconut milk is a delicious way to make sauce, too, so I wish I do like. So I I agree. The coconut is an amazing fruit. (laughs) Is it the best fruit? Well, that's up to our listeners to decide. I'm pretty sure that I knocked the pepper out of contention. It does have the benefit of not causing intense pain <laughs> in your face when you eat it. Unless unless you get hit with a coconut. Exactly. I hear that it actually kills people. Like, it drops from trees and knocks them on the head. So it's... People should be more careful. <laughs> that is highly insensitive, Justine. <laughs> um, so we're on to Felix, right? Yeah. Um, don't put this in the final cut, but I have to admit I'm a little nervous. <laughs> Just feel like you're trying to soften us up, and you know we're yeah. not falling for it. And always be careful. Any anytime anybody says "don't include this in the final cut," it almost always gets included in the final <laughs> cut. <laughs> immediately, immediately oh, going no. into the final cut. <laughs> all right, so I have come to you all today to talk about the most coolest, most awesomest fruit in the world, and that, my friends, is the gourd. Ooh. <laughs> now you might you might be imagining those decorative gourds that we see at the supermarket every fall. Those are soft shell gourds. I'm talking about hard shell gourds. Now you can eat hard shell gourds, but the magic of the gourd is not in eating it. It is in making things with it. So I'm going to argue that the hard shell gourd is the best fruit because it is the most useful, the most musical, and the most spiritual of all the fruits. Ooh. And what makes that all possible is one thing that sets the gourd apart. When it dries, the shell does not rot. It becomes hard. All that moisture evaporates through the shell. And it has been used for thousands of years in so many different ways. So that was Ginger Summit. Um, I spoke to her and her gourd partner in crime, Jim Wydes. Both of them have authored several books on gourds, and they explained to me that dry gourd shells have been used to make all sorts of things throughout human history. They were used to make the first spoons, the first bowls, the first plates, the first baskets, smoking pipes, carrying cases, flotation devices, even a refrigerator for water. What's unique about the gourd, you fill it with water, and even though it's technically waterproof, water will very slowly evaporate through the skin. And when water evaporates, it's got to pull the heat from somewhere in order to vaporize. So it pulls the heat out of the water that's inside the gourd. On a hot day, the water is going to be much colder. 
God, that's cool. That's like a, that would be a great science project for kids. That is so oh, yeah. cool. It's basically the OG insulated water bottle. And you know, Justine, maybe coconuts can be used to carry water, but can it cool it down? I was just going to say, it's like the coconut, but better. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> you still have to go get the water. So Jim and Ginger, they were explaining that um, things like the gourd water bottle and all these other things that uh, humans made, they helped humans carry things. So it allowed our great, 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 great ancestors to basically become mobile, perhaps for the first time in human history. First time. <laughs> I, I will say the dispersion of humans through Polynesia is an amazing story, but it's like relatively recent in human history compared to our, our general wanderings about the world. You yeah. don't need to be first to be the best. What does gourd water taste like? That's what I'd like to know. It tastes like water. The gourd is just a carrying instrument. Doesn't flavor it in any way? Doesn't it taste like pumpkin water? Well, I I myself have never drinking from a gourd. <laughs> well, the Argentinian mate is made of gourd. It's true. You know what? Uh, the the gourd and the uh, coconut could team up. Maybe you could uh, get the coconut water, put it into a gourd, and cool down that coconut water. I actually think that we could like lay down our hatchets and be friends on this one. So go on. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, so I I actually want to talk about what I think is the coolest use that uh, humanity has found for the gourd, and that is making instruments. So I'm just gonna name a few. Just a few instruments, just a few. So instruments include maracas, drums, horns, flutes, lutes, choras, sitars, marimbas, xylophones, guidos, balfoche, the huluchin, the huluse, the hulushung, the kanpao, the ipu, the shekere, the bidimbao. The list goes on and on, my friends. Taylor, how many how many instruments has the pepper been made into? I'm pretty sure you could cut an Anaheim pepper into a flute. Like, it would be temporary. <laughs> I think you're going to need to yeah, prove it to okay. us. Um, but I want to talk about a few specific examples of instruments made from gourds uh, that originated in Africa and exist here in the U.S. as well as in Brazil. So first in the U.S., um, enslaved African Americans created an instrument that came to symbolize community and resistance. Uh, does anybody want to take a guess on what that instrument is? This is this sounds crazy, but the banjo? Exactly, the banjo. Ah, that is what? not crazy, not crazy at all. Um, basically, uh, the banjo, um, or the idea of the banjo, was brought over by Africans during the slave trade. But what the slaves did was to take the gourd and turn it into um, their drums, their shakeres, and also eventually into the banjo. Eventually, the white population, the the banjo was replaced by a tin uh, container, sort of like their tin can. So basically, white people replaced the gourd on the banjo. Um, and why did they replace the gourd with a tin can? Um, basically, to erase the African roots of the banjo. They would say that the black person's banjo was a proto-banjo, a kind of primitive predecessor to the real banjo that white people made. Um, and many people would argue that the gourd banjo sounds much better uh, than the non-gourd banjo. And so I, I went ahead and did a YouTube search and found a song by Rhiannon Giddens. I, I was so hoping that there was going to be a gourd banjo excerpt. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about this. George Buck is dead. Last word he said. Don't you 
but no shortening in my breath. Mm. George Buck is dead. Last word he said, don't you put no shortening in my breath. Oh. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's Rhiannon Giddens. She's a founding member of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, a Grammy Award-winning string band. It's got a real, a really bassy sound. It's yeah. so resonant. It's like it's got this like. That is why the gourd has uh, been transformed into so many instruments. Is because it's a really great resonator. Mm. I'm feeling very unhappy about going last right now. <laughs> so uh, let's hop on over to Brazil. Um, I spoke to a woman named Cheryl Thomas, who plays the shekere. The instrument that I play, the shekere, is the spiritual instrument. And it is used throughout Africa, mainly West Africa, in what is known as calling the Orisha, or the spirits. So Cheryl was explaining that the Shekere was brought over to Brazil, um, and it was used to resist oppression. It, it connected them to the spiritual world for spiritual sustenance, and it helped them get through really tough times. Now, another instrument I talked to Cheryl about is the beating bow which is a big part of capoeira. Now, capoeira is a martial art created by Afro-Brazilian slaves who were training to fight their oppressors. But they were doing it on the sly by masking it in music and dance. To this day, people look at capoeira and think, oh, it's just a dance, like, you can't actually use it to fight. But it was used to fight, most notably in what are called quilombos, these fugitive slave communities. Afro-Brazilians who escaped would form these communities, and legend has it they fought off the Portuguese army using capoeira. Anyway, the beating bow is used to kind of orchestrate the practice of capoeira. And can anyone guess what the beating bow is made from? <laughs> it's a coconut. It's a pepper. It's a pepper. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the gourd. So this humble little instrument made from a gourd helped to foment revolution against slaveholders and the Portuguese army and ultimately helped them achieve freedom from oppression. So I want to ask you all... Um, are you curious to know what a badass instrument like the beating bow sounds like? Hell yeah. Yeah, let's hear it. Well, I can personally demonstrate. <gasps> oh! Wait, Felix, do you practice capoeira? I do. So give me a second. This is a heavy blow to our arguments that Felix is performing <laughs> for us. <laughs> I just want to wrap this up in conclusion that the gourd is the OG spoon, bowl, plate, basket, carrying container, hat, cold water bottle, smoking pipe, you name it, it probably started off as a gourd. But most impressively, it's been the source material of many an instrument, and especially the instruments that liberated people from oppression and guided them to freedom. Mm. Thank you very much. I rest my case. (laughs) Excellent. That was really good. (laughs) 
we've got one left, Sam. The host. Yeah. The host with the most. Indeed. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I have a fruit as well. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Point number one. And I would like to start with a, a very bold claim that my fruit was perhaps the first fruit. Oh. Vanilla is the only edible fruit of the orchid family, which is the oldest order of flowering plants in the world. Whoa. I am speaking, of course, uh, of vanilla. Oh. Wow. I could not verify that it's the first fruit, but it is certainly a very old fruit. Uh, that, by the way, is Patricia Rain, who is a vanilla importer and researcher and author of the book Vanilla, uh, the cultural history of the world's favorite flavor and fragrance, which, dear panel, she sent to me. Uh, it is right here, and, and she inscribed upon it. Uh, dear Sam, this will give you a little leg up in your contest. Oh, <laughs> so sweet that she doesn't know how badly you're going to lose. <laughs> okay, so my argument is that it is a certifiable miracle that you, dear panelists, have tasted vanilla at all, period. Not to mention the fact that it is so widespread as a flavor and that amazingly and improbably has become synonymous with bland or uncontroversial is just, you know, it's, it's, it's so unbelievably unlikely that this fruit has to win. Hard agree. Vanilla, like, as boring when it's the yep. seed pod of an orchid. Like, mm-hmm. are you for real? Yeah, it's kind of unfair. Okay, so can we start with orchids themselves? What do we know about orchids as, as orchid facts? Uh, Flowers are pretty. Indeed, they have a beautiful flower. Um, They have been around for so long that they have evolved this amazing amount of diversity. Um, So there are 25,000 different types of orchids. uh, And that diversity has has evolved in order to attract their ideal pollinators. And they've just spent so much time sort of differentiating and speciating amongst themselves that they have these very collectible among enthusiasts, but also just beautiful generally flowers. So that's that's Mm -hmm. one thing. Don't they grow really high up in trees? canopies often exactly so so many of them though not all are what are called epiphytes which means they grow on top of other living things usually trees and in order to do that they've adapted this incredible uh, ability to survive on very small amounts of water so some of them can just live on fog alone they can sort of suck fog out of the air with their roots so elegant no coconuts necessary which by the way is part of the reason why vanilla as a commercial crop uh, is often carbon negative uh, because in order to grow the vines, you need to they need to be shaded, uh, and so you grow them on Tudor trees. So you have to plant a forest, and then you and then you uh, uh, have the vines climb up the trees. Um, doesn't have to be done that way. They can be grown in like shade greenhouses, but you know it can be a carbon negative food. So that that is our first miracle: is that that uh, you have twenty five thousand different types of orchids. Only one of them produces an edible fruit. It is vanilla, uh, and and so you know what the hay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> what the hay indeed. <laughs> but also the fact that vanilla orchids ever get pollinated at all is objectively astonishing. So vanilla flowers open for one day. It will bloom somewhere from five to 10 in the morning, at which point its pollen starts to degrade. And by 1.30 in the afternoon, 
it will be almost dead. Wow. So like not even a day. Yeah, not even a day, part of a day. In its native range, which is Central America, similar to, to the pepper, uh, there are two bees uh, and maybe some hummingbirds that pollinate it. Um, but assuming that it gets pollinated uh, in this incredibly you know, short window, in two days, two days, that flower immediately becomes a bean. Huge green bean, like green beans on steroids, which is the ovary. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all quite remarkable how these things work. Uh, it's the ovary of the vanilla plant, and that will reach its full length in about two and a half weeks. But it won't be ready to be harvested for nine months. And so just sticking with this theme that, it, that it's a miracle that any of us have ever tasted vanilla at all, um, this plant has to mature on the vine for nine months, and it only grows in the tropics, which, as we know, is sort of hurricane-slash-cyclone city. Um, so what does that mean? Is It means that today, 80% of the world's vanilla comes from one country, which is Madagascar. In March of 2017, there was a huge storm that hit Madagascar. It killed 80 people. It wiped out a third of the vanilla vines that the country grows. That meant that after 2017, prices of vanilla decktupled, uh, which I had to look up. How do you say that? So so 10 times they went from $50 a kilo to $500 a kilo as all these vanilla speculators rushed in to buy up the remaining crop. Uh, and, and because it takes three to four years for vanilla vines to mature after you plant them, we're still living with those prices. Last year, vanilla was selling for more than $400 a kilo. Uh, so like I said, the fact that we have any at all here in, in the United States is miraculous. So your argument so far is that the vanilla is fragile and expensive. Excuse me. And that makes it the best? Excuse me. I have not completed my argument. <laughs> You're going the opposite of versatility. You're yeah. going towards like exquisite and like rare. Yeah. Beautiful. And and like and uh and a marvel. Okay. Um so, so I, I said to that at the beginning, it's an orchid, and orchids are, are famous for co-evolving with their pollinators. Uh, but I also said most of the crop is grown in Madagascar, which is not its native range, right? So that means that almost all of the vanilla in the world is pollinated by hand, which is an incredibly delicate mm. procedure. You take your fingers and press the orchid, which is quite small, by the way, just enough to open up the area that leads to the pollen sac. And there's a slight membrane that protects the pollen sac. And in Tahiti, it used to be that the growers would grow along a small finger nail so the nail was long enough to reach in and break that little membrane oh uh, so this is a thing that on vanilla plantations growers might have to do this process between 400 times a day if it's if it's sort of a extensive 
uh, sort of traditional plantation or as many as 3,000 times a day in these these newer uh, shade greenhouses where, where some people are growing vanilla commercially. Um, which means that, uh, so naturally, when they're just the bees and the hummingbirds pollinating them, a vanilla vine might give eight or nine beans. In commercial crops, each vine will yield hundreds and hundreds of beans. So that means vanilla is the most labor-intensive crop in the world, and it's second only to saffron in price by weight. Mm. I, I got to say that that continues to make an interesting case for the fruit itself, Culturally speaking, I... Quimby, you got to let me complete the circle. You got to let me finish it off. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. All right, okay. all right, all right. So then why, why, why is the world so enamored with this bizarre crop? Uh, one explanation th- is that, and this is sort of fits into my like general hypothesis about how <laughs> capitalist culture feedback loops work, is that we we sort of fetishize wealth uh, and, and to such a degree that whatever wealthy people have, we wind up wanting it. And over the course of decades, the market responds to sort of bring the price down enough that that regular people can have these things. Which brings us to like the very abridged cultural history history of vanilla. Um, this was a sacred drink among the Olmec uh, people, who were who were the quote unquote mother culture of Mexico. Um, and from there, so it was mixed with with chocolate, of course. So so uh, chocolate was the the food of the gods, and uh, vanilla was sort of like the this like sacred flavoring that went with the drink. It was then adopted by the Aztec people after the Olmecs, and then plundered by the Spaniards when they invaded Central America. From there, it w- made its way to Europe, including France, and it was Thomas Jefferson, the slave owning Francophile who popularized vanilla ice cream during these fancy high-society dinner parties here in the United States. Which, like, I can't necessarily say that I, like, condone (laughs) how the world works in this way, but it is something that, when you think about, is kind of just astonishing to behold uh, the degree to which the modern economy has delivered this incredibly delicate uh, and and difficult-to-attain flavor to the world to such a degree that that all of us think of it as, you know, the standard ice cream flavor. There was there was a tweet a couple months ago at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic that was asking like it was like a, a question prompt, what was your like craziest uh, coronavirus panic buy? And a, a friend was like a single vanilla bean for twenty dollars <laughs> was her panic buy. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But this is my closing thought, which is like why? Like why what about the vanilla bean? Apart from the fact that uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth and Thomas Jefferson and other rich fancy people liked it, why is it that it has caught on so much versus some other flavoring? Like like you know, why isn't cumin the the, cumin? the like what you think of when you think of ice cream? Like why isn't why isn't pe- pepper ice cream the pe- the ice cream flavor that we all think of as the normal one? <laughs> Gourd ice cream. Yeah, exactly. Your, your examples here are strange. <laughs> cumin. I'm like I don't know. <laughs> well, but that's my point. Is that that what is it about vanilla that that makes it so uh, attractive and desirable? Uh, Patricia Rain has a thought about that. This will really knock them out. That's you guys. Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> There is a component in mother's milk that smells very much like vanilla, which is why humans and animals are both 
drawn to the aroma of vanilla. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I rest my case. We're all just following our programming. We are hardwired to love vanilla, whether we know it or not. But it is a certifiable miracle that any of us have ever tasted it. Hardwired. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was gonna say that I think um, ovaries are the real winners in this whole discussion. <laughs> uh, so, so Sam, what happens next here? How how are people gonna? you know, basically decide that I'm the winner of my challenge. <laughs> I don't know how you can come away with that conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still fighting. So people can vote for the producer and the fruit that they think was argued best. We'll put a poll on Twitter and on Facebook. But the best method of voting is our website, outsideinradio.org. And, and if all else fails, you can just send us your vote via email to outsidein at nhpr.org. Be sure to put coconut in the subject line of that email. (laughs) So, is he really going to do this? Yep. Okay, Taylor, everyone is about to eat a habanero pepper as we speak. Okay, <clears throat> good to go. <laughs> this, this episode of Outside In was produced by Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Felix Poon, and me, Sam Evans-Brown. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Maureen McMurray is the director of Fermenting Coconut Ropes. A special thanks to Marty Mitchell of Certified Labs and the fine folks at Tabasco Sauce for speaking with me uh, about all the great pepper pitches that never came to fruition. You're doing pretty well right now. <laughs> yeah, I can still I can still rock a pun. <laughs> <laughs> also, special thanks to the American Gourd Society. Special thanks to my wife, Aubrey, for suggesting <clears throat> that I talk about the vanilla bean. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Averin. Uh, our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. <clears throat> Where'd you get that pepper? <sighs> Market basket. Oh my god. All right, so now I gotta go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye, Taylor. Bye. Okay. Man, everyone's closet lights are off. Should I turn off my lights? I don't have any lights. I don't have a closet. Yeah. Closet, <laughs> <lights>. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> closet light. I can't even stand uh, up straight in my closet.